over the summer, which I believe, as I've said countless times, um, was the most crucial season, has been the most crucial season of our church to date. The Lord gave us two sides of what is the same revelation. God is love, God is light. Those two things, First John. Um, love and light can be and should be interchangeable. So love, light, love, light. Because those are two, John says, this is who God is, not what he does. This is who he is. The light at its core is love, and love at its core is light. So tonight, I just want to take a few minutes and talk about light. Darkness and sin are interchangeable as well, but not in the ways that religion typically has said. Sin is not dark because the actions are evil. And actually, sin at its root core is not evil. What it does is evil. But sin, hemartea, is without form or formlessness. I've said this countless times. Darkness, having no ontological existence, is also without form. So sin is formlessness. Darkness is formless because it has no existence. The other translation of dark in the Greek, skia, is obscurity. So, so here's where we're going deep tonight. That, uh, that the story of Yahweh, us, Scripture, Israel, the early church, etc., has never been about works or actions. And, and I, know, I know we've talked about this like so many times, but I, I just, I'm going to like, we're, we're going to bring it home tonight, okay? The, the story of Yahweh, us, Scripture, Israel, the church, etc., has never, ever, ever, ever been about works or actions. Never. And it doesn't seem like a major statement. Like when I say that, because we say it so like, you know, loosely, that does not seem like a major statement. Um, but, but in that statement just now, I have just disagreed with every traditional American theology. Like when I say that the story of God, us, Scripture, Israel, the other church, etc., has never been about works. Does it seem like a big statement? But in that statement, I am disagreeing with every single tradition in American theology. You know what I'm saying? All of them. Because at the heart of everything that we have always believed about God is that because we messed up by our actions, God, and I'm going to be very, very, I'm going to exaggerate, but I'm doing this on purpose, Okay. So this is what we believe. We've always believed that God, this is this about God, that because we messed up in our actions, that God got disappointed and mad, so mad that those actions had to be avenged, and so avenged that he wanted to beat us and shred us limb by limb, look at the cross, because he was so disappointed by what we had done, that the Old Testament gave us a view of a wrathful, punishing, fickle, God with anger issues, and we rightfully deserve what was coming for us because we are so nasty and dirty and bad. But thank God, Jesus, at the last moment, stepped in, took all of that on our behalf, and now if we repeat a prayer and we stop drinking beer and we stop cussing, God will see us drenched in blood and his bloodthirst will be appeased. However, if we step out of line, the anger rages on, this time even harsher, and he gets to do to us what he's really always wanted to do to us, which is watch our nasty selves suffer at his vengeful hands forever. That's American theology. What I just said. This, this is exactly what it is. Is that God, A, has anger issues, right? Which is real hard to reconcile that with God as love. But God has anger issues, 
And because of his anger issues, when Adam took a bite, God turned into this ogre that wanted to shred Adam limb by limb, ready to do it. And Jesus stepped in and said, please, God, don't. You know what I'm saying? And so because we view that about God, now our whole entire lives are built on making sure we keep that anger appeased. And the way we keep that anger appeased is by doing good works. You know what I'm saying? So, of course, of course, religion words that in a way more palatable way. We call it love. You know, we call it all that stuff. But let's, I mean, let's just call a duck a duck, okay? There's a few observations from this way of thinking that I have made. A couple of observations over the past few months. Number one, if this is true, which is a major statement, but if that's true, Let's be real. Who really wants to spend eternity with a father who, had it not been for Jesus, wants to kill us because we're nothing? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, think, think about this. Who wants to spend eternity with a father that has bloodthirst in his veins for us, had it not been for Jesus? You, you know what I mean? Okay? So that's number one, if we're just being real. Number two, if this is true, there is no Trinitarian theology. This is stuff I've taught before. Okay? If this view of God is true. There is no Trinity. There there are three very, very different gods, and each of them at their core really against each other's prerogative. Jesus is love. He wants the best for us. God is anger, and he's ready to destroy us. They're really against each other, and the Holy Spirit's saying, Lord Jesus, which moment do I go with this one, right? Number three, and I'm going to make a really, really, really big statement here, which is probably why the Lord only brought a few people tonight. If that's true, that way of thinking. I think, and y'all just hang with me, I think we'd be better if Jesus had not stepped in at all. Let me explain. The worst, if you read the Old Testament, because we get the luxury of knowing how the story of Israel has ended, okay, or at least how it's come to a conclusion that's going to be brought into eternity. Okay, so if that's true, if that's true, the worst the Israelites got when they obeyed and, and disobeyed, and, and let me be clear, here's how the Israelites disobeyed. Child sacrifice, prostitutes in the place of worship. Like, if y'all walked in to a church today, and um, on this side we had male prostitutes, on that side we had female prostitutes, in the middle we had a big statue with his hands like this, and we're burning babies. You know what I'm saying? You would be like, dear God, like, this is just, that, that's how Israel, that's Israel. They, that's how Israel disobeyed. They didn't just tell a fib, or they didn't just sleep around, or whatever. I'm not saying that's you should. I'm just saying, like, it, they, they were killing babies. They were having God knows what in the sanctuary, in the place of work. I mean, all this stuff, okay? So Israel, the worst they got when they disobeyed was a short exile and redemption, Right? I mean, you read the Old Testament, like, like they disobey, they disobey, they disobey, they disobey. I'm going to send you into exile, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. And this is how God responds to Israel. You disobeyed, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to step in. I'm going to become you. I'm going to redeem you. You can taste the fruit of it without doing one thing. I'm going to do it on your behalf just because I love you. That's what he does for Israel, right? So, so that's before Jesus, and so if how we view God today is accurate, which is not, but if how we view God today in the West is accurate, we were way better off in the old covenant because at least there was always redemption at the other side. You know what I'm saying? 
with this, we see no redemption on the other side. So, I mean, so we, I'll take the old way in that because it every single time ended in redemption. These ways of thinking and the story of Scripture simply, that I just said, does not add up. Let alone the issues of, for this is just an example, Jesus telling us to do things that God doesn't even do or can't do, which is love your enemies, forgive those who do wrong to you, forgive people of their debts simply out of kindness. I have come, Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, I have come to declare the year of jubilee of our Lord. What is the year of jubilee? All slaves are set free whether or not they've paid their debts. You know what I'm saying? So he's telling, turn the other cheek. If somebody punches you, you give them the other cheek to punch you back. You know, like if some if somebody takes money from you and they don't pay you back, don't go kill them. Just bless them. So 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 there's another issue because now we have Jesus telling us to do things that either a God cannot do or b God will not do because we don't believe God loves His enemies. We believe God wants to destroy His enemies. But he told us not to destroy our enemies. He told us to love our enemies. You know what I'm saying? So, so in, if, the, if this American South has it right, which is, you know, we've in essence been given a standard of living that God doesn't live up to. And if God doesn't live up to it, we can't. Therefore, what do we do? We spend our days trying to earn worth by what we do, yet never getting there by what we do because the system is built at its core to make us fail because even God doesn't live up to that standard. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's just none of this adds up. I contend, I contend, as do the early church fathers, as does the Bible, as does Athanasius, Origen, Irenaeus, Karl Barth of the 90s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, C. Baxter Kruger, Eugene Pearson, the list goes on. I contend and we contend more that what we have is an entirely, entirely different story of history than you and I have grown up believing. That, and this is, this is, this is the true story of history, that before one thing was created... God chose you and I as the objects of his love, that we were created out of desire, that the creation was designed to be the place within God for God and his kids to be intimate in communion together, that God knew we would disobey, yet he still knit us together, and in order to keep us in his fold, he made a plan before creation happened to become us so as to bring us home when we left home. Adam and no one after Adam was separated from God at the fall. How, how can you be separated from someone that you exist within? You can't. However, the tree of knowledge of good and evil gave birth to a mindset that absolutely enslaved us. Suddenly, the pure devotion and innocence that we were created in was veiled by a new thought, who I am not. And in response to this thought, we began creating lives to become something that we were convinced now we were not. Jesus says it like this, a little leaven spoils the whole batch. So the original substance of who we really are was always there. 
But behind the veil of this delusion, what we are not, we were diving into a void of absolute nothingness that would ultimately end in death. Therefore, as Athanasius asked, the early church father, what was God to do? What was God to do about this? God peered into the delusion of the human race and gave what Karl Barth says, I love this, he gave a resounding and ever-echoing response, no, I will not allow my kids to fall so deep into their fallen delusion that I miss out on their communion, so I will become them. I will trek deep into the heart of their fall, submit willingly to it, and there I will say, let there be light. And as my hands are wide open, nailed to a cross of their darkness, I will beckon them to come home. It is finished. That's the Yahweh of Scripture. It has always been about identity, not works. A hundred percent of Scripture has always been about identity, not works. Sin is not what you do. It's not being who you are. I know there's only a few of us in here, but feel free to just help me out. It would not... It would not be sin, okay? It would not be sin unless there was an expectation that was superior, and that expectation is you being who you are, sons and daughters of the Most High. Why would you, if, if I go out and sleep around and I'm married, why would you look at me and say that's wrong? Because there is an expectation, not because of who I am as a pastor, there's an expectation because I'm a son of God, right? So, so you guys inherently know my identity, and I inherently know your identity. So if I live sub that identity, you know something's not right. And the reason you know something's not right is not because of a law. It's because of an understanding of who we really are that's innate in all of us, whether or not we understand that. You know what I'm saying? So that's the Yahweh of Scripture. It's always been about identity. <clears throat> um, so if the whole narrative is about works, in the South, we believe this, the whole narrative is about works, then God's wrath is against you because of what you have done. But if the whole narrative is about who you are and who you are is who he's always wanted, then the wrath of God is against the, is against the delusion of I am not within you to reveal the real you. So, so I'm, I am, uh, and I'm going to get like a little theological for a second, but then I'm done with this. But I'm a thousand percent, and y'all know this about me, against penal substitutionary atonement theory, which in the South is what every nomination and every church believes. It's a, a penal substitute. The, the East does not believe this. They wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. But penal substitution atonement is exactly what I just told you. We were terrible. The, even the idea of original sin. You know what I'm saying? Like, just there, there's this whole mindset that when Adam took a bite and Eve took a bite of this fruit, something in their DNA was completely darkened. That is not true. The fall was not the bite. The fall was when the enemy came to Adam and Eve, and the enemy said, if you, if you do this, you'll be this. And Adam and Eve said, that sounds right, and they operated in it. That was the fall. The fall was not, oh, man, this is pretty good. That was not the fall. Dear Lord, like, if that's the case, God is very fickle. He's got more anger issues than I got. 
You know what I'm saying? That's not the fall. The fall was Adam and Eve buying into this idea that if we do this, we'll be like this. They were already like God. They didn't do anything to be like God. They inherited their identity like God. But a delusion came in which says, if we do this, we become this. That's why Israel interpreted the law as, if we do this, we'll be God's people. That was not the law. It was a covenant. It was, you are my people, therefore this is the covenant that you and I both are going to be in. You know what I mean? Like, and then they said that and said, well, bro, we, better not, we better not lift a finger on the Sabbath because that's what the law says. That was, that was not the point of the law. You know what I'm saying? The point of the law was for them to understand that they were actually God's people. Not just by God saying, you're my people, but by, by God saying, here's how much you're my people. Here is a covenant that I'm going to write with my own finger. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like that, this, is who, this is who God is. Let, let me mess with you a little bit. Jesus... Uh, you know the hymns, uh, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin and left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. There, there's, there's these hymns, there's these, you know, it's not in scripture, but there's these, these, this thinking that Jesus paid a debt that I owed. You know what I mean? Like, praise God, there was a debt that I owed. Let me, let me, just, let me, just, let me just help you out. Jesus did not owe anyone anything, and neither did you and I. Well, brother, that's not what the Gaither vocal band says. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, G Jesus did not owe anybody anything, and this is going to get me in huge trouble one day. You and I did not owe anybody anything. Well, how can you prove that? 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not keeping a debt of people's sins against them. <laughs> there was no debt. So what did the cross do? The, the debt thing only works in a works-based thinking. That if Jesus paid my debt, every single time I messed up, it was tallying a debt with God that one day had to be paid. But if the whole thing's about identity, there's one issue. Either me being in my identity or me not being in my identity. That's it. Now, of course... Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So if I start operating as a, I mean, just a, if I start operating as a doctor, right? If I say, you know what? I think I want to be a doctor. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to study how to be a doctor. I'm going to open up a practice. I'm going to start seeing patients. And then I'm going to operate as a doctor because that's who I am, right? So, but right now, I'm not in college to be a doctor. I'm not opening a practice and I'm not seeing patients. Do you know why? Because I'm not a doctor, do you know what I'm saying? And so for us to see sin as actions is for us to see identity as what we do. And that's not identity. My daughter's not my daughter because she's a good girl. My daughter's my daughter because Jordan and I chose to make her our daughter whether or not she agrees with it. You know what I'm saying? All right. In truth, in an identity-based thinking, there can't be a debt. The whole thing, the whole thing is about pulling out of us the real us, so we can be us again and enjoy him as us again. Jesus became us to remind us of who we really are and to kill the lie we believed about who we really are, which is sin and darkness. That, that's why Jesus 
was so harshly against the religious ones and not the prostitutes and tax collectors who had no issue believing in and following Jesus. He was harsh against the Pharisees who kept the law to a T, but then the prostitutes and tax collectors, he said, if you'll come follow me, forget all the other stuff. And they had no issue with it. No issue. Let me, let me all right, Romans 3.23, check this out. Very popular verse in the, in the Reformed people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, Lord. All have sinned. Okay? So what is sin? Remember, sin is hamartia, without form. It's formlessness. Formlessness. So all have been formless and fallen short of the glory of God. All have lived from a place of believing you are not what you actually are. And the issue is... Excuse me. The issue with the Pharisees and religion today, same thing, is that they were in sin, formlessness, but they were fully convinced that they were in the light. They were in the darkness, but had labeled their darkness light or the law. Okay? So they were double, I call, I've, this is my, like, I'm coining this phrase. They were double delusional. They, they didn't know who they really were, and they were convinced that their delusion was actually who they really were. They, they, they lost their minds and believed their lost minds were actually found. Their, their, actions, their actions were much, much better than the sinners. The Pharisees, if we're going by works, were way better than the tax collectors, way better than the prostitutes, way better than the sick, all that. Their actions were much better, yet Jesus didn't rebuke the sinners. He rebuked the Pharisees. So obviously, there was something that Jesus was aiming at, and it was not works. Because if it was works, the Pharisees would have been his followers. And then he would have gone straight to the prostitute that they're all about to stone and said, you're about to get what you deserved, but if you repeat this prayer and you start living better, you won't. You know what I'm saying? No, no, no. He goes to the prostitute and said, hey, all y'all, all y'all, throw the first stone. Anybody who's perfect, go ahead and throw it. And everybody walks away, and he looks at her and says, go and sin no more. What? Go and, go and sin no more? What is he talking about? Stop being a prostitute? Absolutely. But the way that he's saying stop being a prostitute is he's saying now that you've encountered the Son of God, you know who you are. So don't go live as a prostitute who doesn't know who she is because now you know who you are, therefore you're not going to settle for that lifestyle anymore. Way different. Very different. But then he goes to the Pharisees and he says, you're sons of Satan. <laughs> Why? Because you think by keeping the law, you're in the light. And you're in the dark, and by way of the law, you're masking your dark, calling it the light. So you're, in, in essence, you're teaching people to pretend, and you're saying that's the way you're in. I have come to teach people to be the real them, and the first thing that's going to have to happen is the fake them to fall, which all of religion was built on. So, so, <clears throat> what, do, what does this tell us? What does this tell us about God? Look at the verse right after all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Check this out. They, the Reformed people never say this, right? right? So, but if you read it together, and there are no verse numbers in the original text, so we wouldn't have a clue this is a different verse. So let's just read it together. Let's just read it together. 
uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. <laughs> what? You know what I'm saying? Bro, bro, all have sinned. Absolutely. And all were also justified. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and this stuff gets me in trouble because in the South, in the South, in the South, and, and when I say in the South, because like that's just where we are, um, you said, well, you're, you're talking about a God. You're talking about, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the only gospel. There's, there's only one gospel, and it's the one I'm talking about. The other stuff about you being scum and you being, you know, a sinner saved by grace and all that stuff, that's, that is not this. That is uh, paganism. That's Platonism. That's Dante. That's New Age. That's New Age. What I, that, is, that stuff is. That everybody's bought into. That's religion. That's not, even, that's not Christianity. That's not even anywhere close to this God, the right God. That's something completely different. And so the, here's how religion, this is how the enemy has played us, though. The enemy has so convinced us that our darkness is actually light that when people show up that are actually light, religion looks at it because they're so convinced that the darkness is light and it starts calling the light darkness. That's what I'm experiencing. And I love it because it's just confirmation that we're doing the right thing, right? But what do you do with this? What do you do with it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who would you put in that category? And, I mean, seriously, just think about this. You would put, well, you put whoever you want in that category. Um, but, but then Paul right after that follows that and says, all right, everybody that you just put in that category, now we're going to apply all those people to this verse. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Well, brother, that's, that's going too far. I'm to take it up with Paul. So light, light equals truth about identity, okay? That's what light equals. And darkness equals a lie, okay, about identity or being without identity. Now, let me read Luke. Okay, Luke 33, uh, 35 through, 33 through 36, so three verses. Um, here we go. Jesus says, no, and I'm going to read this from a couple of translations. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden under a bowl or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in the house might see the light. Now, check this out. Excuse me. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Now, he's talk, you got to remember, he's talking mostly to Pharisees when he's talking about this right here. So, so most of his aim in this is Pharisees, okay? And the religious people. So your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye, if your Bible has plural there, delete, just take a pen and mark out the yes. That's wrong. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See, this, Listen to what Jesus says. Remember, he's talking to religious people. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Okay? And then the Pharisees step in and start asking him questions about um, just dumb stuff. So, um, this is what he says. He says, when your eye 
is healthy, your entire being is full of light. Okay? Full of the, remember what light is, the truth. Okay? Truth about who you are. So, when your eye is healthy, your entire being is full of the right thing, identity. When your eye is sick, unhealthy, your entire being is full of darkness, obscurity, not knowing who you are. Okay? In verse 30, excuse me, 35 is a direct strike against religion. And to be frank, the current American ultra relevant mega church, you know, type culture movement, which is make sure the light within you is not actually darkness. Make sure the light within you is not actually darkness. So remember what I said. Remember what I said about religious ones, about Pharisees that Jesus is talking about. They're double delusional. They're double-minded, okay? I'm going to go back to that in just a second. Make sure what you think, Jesus is saying, make sure what you think is light isn't actually darkness, okay? And then in verse 36, 36, Jesus brings it full circle and says, but when you're living in the light, you get your image and likeness back. I'll hit that in just a minute. Okay, so a couple of Greek words just for you guys for the fun of it. The word I in the Greek is ophthalmos, ophthalmos in the Greek. And here's what it means. I think I said this Sunday. It means the mind's eye, the mind's eye, not like Illuminati or whatever. But what this is, for our purposes, let's just say for us, um, ophthalmos is how you think about something or perceive something. It's your perspective, okay? That's what this word means, your perspective, your way of thinking, how you perceive things. So it's not if you have 20-20 vision, you'll be full of light. It's if you think in right thinking, you'll be full of light. Now, I, we, me and Matt grew up, and some of y'all might have grown up, and you will hear this verse, you know, your eyes limit the body. Um, uh, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. And we would teach that as you better be careful what you look at because if you start looking at the wrong stuff, then your body's going to be full of darkness when we call darkness evil. So, and really, really, really what we were saying is, boys, you better be careful looking at porn because if you, do, you know, and the whole thing. So, or you better not lust. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. And Damon Thompson says this and it's brilliant. But here's the problem with that way of thinking. That's a works-based, everything's about what we do. The problem is, is that if I don't look at, and let's use that example, pornography. If I don't look at pornography, y'all know we have a mind's eye way of thinking that doesn't need to be looking at a computer screen to process images in our head. Right? You know what I'm saying? And so like, so if, if that's the case, then that means my identity can be completely... T- because I, I can't... Jesus said, if you look on a woman and lust, you've committed adultery. I can commit adultery without ever laying eyes on a woman with my mind's eye. You know what I'm saying? So, so what Jesus is saying is he's not saying, make sure you don't look at the wrong stuff. He's saying, you need to fix how you perceive everything. And then, of course, once you fix that, you'll stop looking at the wrong stuff too. But I mean, so it's a completely different thing. That's what optimos means. The word healthy is the Greek word haplus. Greek word haplus. It means single, simple, sound, perfect. I don't like that. Um, but it means single, simple, sound. It means this is check this out. This is from Strong's, I believe, in coordinates. The word haplus means you are undivided without a double agenda 
undivided, without a double agenda. You are one. James 1 says, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Pharisees, you know what I'm saying? The double-minded man. So what healthy means is haplous, which is the opposite of the double-minded man, is the single-minded man. The single-minded man is the one with one perception, which is the kingdom. The very thing Jesus came to do, which is ultimately right way of thinking, which is ultimately being in the right identity. Okay? So, let me, uh, let me read a, uh, a little note here in this uh, little fancy little Bible. I got a um, little study Bible. The, the translation is not that great, but the notes are unreal. Luke 11 and uh, let, me just, let me just read this little note to you right here in verse 34. <clears throat> so, uh, the word haplus from ha, which is a particle of union, and hama together with pleco, meaning to uh, plate, to braid, to weave together. So, if the eye is single, single, entwined with light, the whole body is full of light. Every, excuse me, entwining our eyes, the word haplus, um, comes the, the, ha- the back half of that compound comes from a word that means to braid together, okay? So braiding together or entwining our eye with Papa's eye is what brings light to our entire being, which is exactly what the word kewa in Hebrew means in Isaiah 40, 31. What is that? They that entwine with the Lord's thoughts or the most of our Bibles say wait, but the, the Greek word kewa is the same thing as the Greek word haplus, to entwine, okay, single. So it's the same word that when it says, they who wait on the Lord will mount up on wings like eagle, it's, it, it's, it's not just I'm going to sit around and wait. It's in, going through the process of entwining who you are and how you think with the Lord that mounts you up on wings like eagle, okay? So we're, we're wired by design to be entwined, entwined, uh, unreal. That's why this is so good. Okay, so now let me go to the next part. Let me go to the next part. The next part, uh, let me save my place right there because I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Y'all good? Okay, I love that there's not a lot of people here because I feel so comfortable. Um, the word unhealthy in the Greek, this is going to be awesome. The word unhealthy, paneros. Paneros, and I'm pronouncing that with a southern draw. It's not how you pronounce it, but anyway, paneros. Okay, it comes from the root word panos. Check this out, which means to labor, to toil, or to work, and it also means pain. So the word paneros means to work until pain. I mean. That, that's ex, this is exactly why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, that I keep going back to this lately, and I'm going to hit it tomorrow too. Whoever loses their life will find it, right? You lose what you can't see. If Veda was in the room and I was looking at her, I would not say she's lost. But if she ran outside and then I went to look where she is supposed to be and she wasn't there, I would say, holy crap, she's lost. And the reason I would say she's lost is because I couldn't see her. The minute she comes back in the room and I lay eyes on her, immediately I change her status to not lost anymore, right? They, whoever loses sight of their life, their old life, will find 
sight of their life. Right? I mean, just, just unreal. So let, let, me, let me do this real quick. Let me do this because I'm, I'm just blowing through my notes. So I'm, I'm just about done. Um, let, let, me, let, me, let me just read what uh, Francois Dutois, that's what this guy's name is. Let me just read what he says here. Okay. So the eye is the lamp of the body. <clears throat> Verse 34. When the eye is entwined with light, the entire person is illuminated. But when the paneros that works system of wearisome rules and regulations is its focus, everything's darkness. So verse 35. So make sure then that your inner light is not veiled by secret hidden compartments or perhaps devious business transactions work-based which gives darkness dominance in your life. Okay? And then verse 36, check this out. So with the light dispelling every trace of darkness within you, your entire life then becomes a beaming, radiant life. light. Check this out. Check out this note. You do not need to first get rid of darkness and then bring in the light. Light deals most effectively and effortlessly with darkness. The light of the gospel does not reveal sin. It actually reveals freedom from sin. Is that not awesome? Right? The light of the gospel does not reveal sin. It reveals freedom from sin. Right? So how many, listen, how many of, how many of us, the gospel that we got saved into, uh, it was um, hell is hot. Uh, you're nasty, and if you don't do this, you're going to burn forever. It's like everything's rooted in hell, right? And so the way that we were scared into coming to church and repeating a prayer, the way that we were scared into it was hell is hot. At no point in my life, at no point was I ever said, God loves you so much, he won't stop seeking until he finds you. Because if somebody had told me that gospel, I would have said, that's my God. That sounds right. The love of God is not like passive. It's not like, like, all right, just do whatever you want. No, 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 no. It's very pointed. It's very accurate. It's very, God disciplines those he loves. Absolutely. But it's, all of it is not aimed at us. It's aimed at that which is within us that should not be within us. You, just, you see what I'm saying? Very different. And if we're not careful, if we see a workspace, this is what happens. If we see a works-based gospel and a works-based religion, when God starts aiming at our works, we'll think he's aiming at us because who we are is our works, right? So that's why everybody thinks God's mad because he is absolutely aiming at the junk in our lives, absolutely. But because we identify with the junk in our lives, as he's aiming at the junk in our lives, we perceive that he's aiming at us, and he's not. And if we would get a better perspective over who we actually are, then when God starts to aim at the junk in our lives, we would say, please, turn up the heat. You know what I mean? I, like, the refiner, I want, to be, I want to be tried by fire, purified. Take whatever you desire. You know what I'm saying? But if the stuff that he wants to take is what we identify with, which is all religion, if the stuff he wants to take is what we identify with, then all of a sudden, like, like for example, the, the people, because this is the most prevalent in our culture, people that struggle with pornography. When you talk to people that struggle with pornography, they feel like trash because of what they do, right? 
And so when you sit down, I used to tell people, stop doing it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's just like, like, and I still do. Of course, I still do that. Um, my first thing, I'm like, number one, you do understand, just as you can say yes, you can absolutely say no. It's that um, simple. And um, so, so just say no, you know. Um, like, yeah, you shouldn't have to have a sight blocker. But anyway, um, but then there's another layer behind that in that there's, there's this, you talk about the entwining. This is why he says this, okay? When your eye is healthy, it's full of light. When it's unhealthy, the other way you could say this, Ross, is that it's been entwined with the wrong thing. And so when your identity begins to be entwined with the darkness and he starts coming after darkness, pornography is not who you are and I am your father, therefore I'm going to discipline the porn addiction in your life. But if that's my identity, then I hear that as he's coming to destroy me. You know? But, but that's why I let he who has an ear hear. But if we could hear this right, we could say, no, I'm not coming to destroy you. I'm actually coming to redeem the real you. And the way to redeem the real you is to get that junk out of your life. It's my love that's coming after that, not my hatred towards you. But the, the difference in us seeing love, God is love, and God is hate, is if we're entwined with his thoughts about us or if we're entwined with our thoughts about us. That's it. You know what I mean? And that's why I say, because the, 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 what people typically do is over the summer, we'll hear what I'm talking about, and then they'll start saying I'm promoting the gospel. People do whatever they want. I'm not talking about works, good or bad. I'm, just, I'm talking about identity. I'm talking about what the cross was aimed at. And if it fixes identity, suddenly I know long, that's what Paul says. I want to do what I don't want to do, and I do what I don't want to do, and I, you know all that stuff. You say, well, who's going to save me from this you know, wretched body of mine, blah, 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 blah. And when he says, "Let me, oh, Lord, okay, because I'm about to misquote this. Don't turn there. Romans 7. This is, um, this is, what, this is what he says. Okay. Um, the, uh, the unwelcome intruder is what I want to read. Let me, just let me find this for a second. Um, sin seized the opportunity. Uh, once I was alive apart. Listen to what he says. <clears throat> um, I did that, did that which is good, then became death by no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it was used to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do what I do not do, and what, uh, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good." As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is the sin, formlessness, living in me, right? For I know that good itself, it, good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So Paul is like crazy 
But he ends right here and says, now if I do what I do not want to do, what is that? Sin. It is no longer I doing it. It's not me doing it. It's the formlessness within me doing it. And then you skip a few verses down. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For now, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life to set you free from the law of sin and death. What? What is that? It's the unwelcome, Passion Translation says, intruder in me that does what I do not want to do. I mean, this is the whole, this is the whole gospel. So, 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 let me get back. Um, almost done. Almost done. <clears throat> Verse 33 and 34, talking about healthy eyes, light, the whole thing is a setup for what Jesus was really addressing, which is in verse 35, okay? See to it that the light within you is not darkness, okay? Um, he says, this is what Jesus says. He says, what defines you being full of light or full of darkness is determined exclusively by the health of our eye, by our perception, by how we think. Light is an identity, and I'm about to prove that to you, okay? Light is an identity. So you having and living in your rightful identity is solely based on whether or not you think right. About what? About God and us, okay? So verse 35, verse 35 is saying, as he looks directly into the religious one's eyes, Take inventory of what you claim is light. Because if it came through sick eyes, that paneros works-based thinking, if it came by way of works, it's actually darkness. And make sure you're not calling darkness light. Okay? Take inventory, looking straight at the religious ones. Take inventory over what you claim is light. Because if it came through works, it's not light, it's dark. Uh, so... Uh, let, let me, um, let me, 1 John, 1 John uh, 1, 5 through 7. Let me just read this real quick. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Okay, so he's talking about light. This is why light is an identity. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Let me just find it real quick. 1 John 1. Where's 1 John? Here we go. Okay, 1 John chapter 1. Check this out. This is, I mean, bad to the bone. Five through seven. My conversation with you, John says to people who's writing, flows from the same source which illuminates this fellowship of union with the Father and the Son. This then is the essence. This is the message that we heard, the Pastor Translation. This is the gospel that was preached to us that God is radiant light, and in Him there exists not even a trace of obscurity or darkness at all. This is the real thing. To live a life of pretense is such a waste of time. The truth has no competition. Truth inspires the poetry of friendship in total contrast to a fake performance-based relationship. Check this out. Light is not threatened by darkness. Why say something with darkness as your reference? He's talking about the difference between works and identity. Verse 7. We're in, we are in, check, check out how he says this. We are invited to explore the dimensions of the same light 
that engulfs God, when we see the light in his light, fellowship ignites. In this light, we understand how the blood of Jesus Christ is the removal of every sin. But let me read, let me read it like this. That the blood of Jesus Christ is the removal of every distortion or stain of sin. Hamartia without form. Okay, so the blood of Jesus Christ is to remove that. Now, I need four tables up here. So God is light. God does not shine light. God is not bright like light. God is light. The word is might be the most important word in the entire New Testament. Because if that says God does light, or God acts like light, or he looks like light, we have a completely different thing. But John says, no, this is the message we heard. God is light. Is is an identity, okay? So the God identity is light. And if God is light, and we are in his image and likeness, what does that make us at our core? Light, that there is no trace of darkness within. So in him, in God, there is no distortion. God is pure, real, excuse me, real, undivided, unquestioned, authentic, original identity with no distortion present. That's who God is, right? Now, if you go back to Luke 30, 11, 36, what does it say? He says, therefore, if your whole body is full of light... And the word there is the same Greek word that John uses when he says God is light. Check this out. Before then, Jesus is using a different word for light, which is just a generic word for light. Unreal. But when he gets to here where it says, if your whole body is full of light, he's no longer talking generically. He specifically says, if your full body, if your whole body is full of the same light that God is. And no part of it dark. Hello, First John. It will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Unreal. This is full of light with no trace of darkness. This is our atonement, our at one This is what it is. That, that we are entwined our being with his as, as one. It's single. But, but how do we get there? This is where I'm going to wrap up. We don't need keys. You know, but I'm going to wrap up like this. Um, man, I got through this good. What time is it? Holy Lord. All right. 845. How, so how do we get there? Light is a secondary consequence of healthy eyes or a right way of thinking. Darkness is a secondary consequence of sick eyes or a works-based mindset. So, so because darkness is not real alone, you are always either filled with light or filled with the absence of light. Darkness doesn't exist. So technically, it's impossible to, to be filled with darkness. That's why that word darkness right there, I'm not 100% strong on that translation. And it should be obscurity because now we're talking about something totally different. That's what the word is. But uh, darkness is not ontological. It doesn't exist, right? It has no waveform. So you're not full of darkness. You're either full of light or you're not full of light. You know what I'm saying? And so what we are filled with or what we are emptied of is solely, Jesus says, determined by how we think or I. I mean, unreal. 
So what, let me ask you this question. What did Yahweh do for us over the summer? He gave us healthy eyes. God is love. I mean, that is the basic, basic understanding of all of this. God is love the whole summer. What was he doing? What he was really doing was giving us a healthy eye. And what does that then become a prophetic announcement for? Light. Or our rightful identity where there is no trace of obscurity or what we are not or questioning it found within us. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and I'm going I'm to teach a lot on him. I love this dude. Um, but this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He was uh, martyred by Hitler for leading a resistance against him, but he was a great theologian. He died at age 39, um, martyred at age 39, hung by Hitler. But he said this, cheap grace, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace, which is obviously not the grace we want, right? Cheap grace, as it is presented in religion, means the justification of sin, the work of sin, without the justification or being made right of the one who sins. This is, that's, that's the cheap, the cheap stuff. And here, here, is, he's nailing down the point tonight. That, that we've made the gospel about what you do, and by doing so, we've consequently been responsible for the spiritual death of millions toiling their fingers to the bone, trying to find the identity that their toils is actually killing. A works-based mindset kills a truth identity mindset. You know what I'm saying? That's why it's so difficult for us to receive what I've been talking about this summer. For some people, extremely difficult. But it's like, well, how in the world can you say that about us if this person's doing this? Because we're switching the whole thing to talk about who people are. We're not looking at what people do as an identifier. We're looking at what people do as a fruit of them either living and knowing their identity or them not living or not knowing their identity. You know what I mean? It's just completely shifting this, right? And so because of that, because we've made the gospel about doing, as people have started doing, all of a sudden... The truth, the light, is covered up or enveloped by this veil of a lie, which is darkness, which is the fall. Okay? So religion is not just responsible for the church not going anywhere. Religion is responsible for those in the church dying a death before they take their last breath. This is why I'm so against the fall, as I said, the fall did not happen when Adam and Eve ate a fruit. The fall happened when they agreed with the idea they needed to do in order to be. Adam and Eve never failed. They never fell in the way that we see it. Because a few generations later, you have Enoch. Before a law, before Jesus, before any sacrifice, you have Enoch who was in such intimacy with the Lord that the Lord just snatched him. Without a law, without a sacrifice, he didn't do any of that stuff that we have recorded. And yet... He was in, as a fallen sinner, was in such an intimacy with the Lord that he just took him. How, how do you reckon that? No, Adam and Eve and those after them, had, they lost their ever-loving minds. And if anything had fallen, it was their minds. 
But their identity never changed. They did not create their identity. Therefore, you and I have no authority to change it. God, God gave us our identity. And when did he give us our identity? Not when you were born. He told Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. He told, and Paul says, Paul says that before the foundation of the earth, you were chosen in love. So we, God marked us and knew us and designed us and gave us our identity before we ever took a breath or before we ever produced one work of our hand. So we can't change our identity. God, like God gave us our identity. We have no, no way of changing it. So therefore, therefore, our works sure can't change our identity. But if we think our works has changed our identity, that's something completely different than our works actually changing our identity. I know I'm, I know, I, like, I know, I know I'm, I'm saying stuff that really doesn't make sense, but I just, I'm just going to trust it, okay? So they lost their minds. Um, if anything had fallen was their minds, their identity never changed. They saw their identity differently. But to be clear, in reality, it was the same. Jesus became what he was not, sin, so that we might be reminded of, thus live in, who we are. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Or, so that we might be unveiled as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amazing. The, 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 I have something in mind. I'm just going to skip that. <laughs> um, sometimes when I'm writing some of these notes, I'll get real into it, and I'll write stuff against some things in religion that I don't think I need to actually say. But... One day, somebody's going to find these one day and hear it. George McDonald once said, and I'm, this, is, this is it. <clears throat> I'm really done. Um, oh, Lord, I just got scared. I saw all my notes, but those are for tomorrow. So um, I was like, oh, I'm not done. Um, George McDonald once said, check this out. Good souls, many, will one day be horrified at the things they now believe about God. Good souls, many, will one day be horrified at the things they now believe about God. I'm going to end with this story. My daughter is eternally loved. Veda, eternally loved because of one thing. She is mine. Period. Right? So, so Jordan and I made her in our image and likeness, and by doing so... We chose to love her forever. That love is not contingent on anything she does. Like, she's in this stage right now where she doesn't listen a lot because she's just growing and she's just emotional and all this other stuff. And so she's in that stage. But at no point in her temper tantrums and her, and her not listening and her doing all that stuff, do, at no point do I look at Jordan and say, you know what, I don't think I want her to be our daughter anymore. And if I did, all of y'all would go to our leaders and say, I don't think he needs to be the pastor anymore because it's wrong. Yet that's what we think about God, the Father, who Jesus says, if you being, being who you are will give good things to your kids, how much more will the Father, will Abba, give himself, the Holy Spirit, to his kids? I, I, I mean... Her, her, our love for her is not contingent on what she does. It is contingent on the choice that Jordan and I, not Veda, Jordan and I made before she ever took a breath. The choice that we made, Jordan and I, 
was to include her in our union. We, we made permanent space in our union for her that she will always feel because we said so. Do you see this authority in this? Like we, we the, the reform thinking in the reformed church, I know I'm against it because it's demonic, but the reformed thinking is that God is this, you know, son of a gun who's angry and all that other stuff. That's, that's you know, what we think about God. And yet, if I operate like that as, according to them, a sinner who's, you know, fallen or whatever, um, I'm charged. That's not, that you should not be acting like that. Well, if I shouldn't be acting like that, God shouldn't be acting like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, you know, and, um, but well, how can you say that? Because I'm made in his image. How I am, he is. Prove it. Well, let's make man in our image and likeness. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, but, but this is something with, with our daughters or with our kids or with your parents, your, your parents, if you have good parents, you know, and they should be, they should be like this if they're not. But if your parents are good, then when you were born, they made the decision we're going to love this kid, period. And so when you lose your mind and you go off on a 30-year bender or whatever you need to do, and you come home and you come to Thanksgiving dinner and you sit at the table, guess what? Mom and dad are going to be right there with a hug and right there with a meal ready for you to sit at the table because that's as it should be. I mean, counselors know this. When they t- well, why, why, what, what would you label as a bad parent? A bad parent would be a parent that when you do something wrong or when they hold that against you and suddenly your relationship changed because of what you've done. We would call that a bad parent. So, <laughs> you know? But, but Veda is loved because we said so. That's it. Not because of what she's done. So when she messes up, or when she, literally, I've, I've started doing this lately, but she'll be losing it. And I'll say, Veda, Veda, Veda. Finally, you get her to calm down. And I'll look at her and I'll say, I love you. And it's like, she's like, uh, okay. You know, and she'll just kind of like, just stop. You know, it's just unreal. Because when I say Veda, she's expecting me to be like, like, like this has got to. And sometimes we, like, you know what I mean? Obviously, like some, I'm, I'm talking about human kids. But the point is, is that if that's how I treat my kid, she's loved because Jordan and I said she's loved. Not because she never had, and let me really, she never even had a say in it. Veda doesn't get to choose whether or not she's loved. We do. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? How does this begin to mess with us? How does this mess with how we see everything? I mean, think about this. Like, how, how does this, Effect like what did the cross do? Now, now, if I ask you that question before this sermon or before this summer, I would say, "What did the cross do? Forgive our sins." I mean, sure, absolutely, yeah, great, amazing, awesome. But Lord, if we stop there, I mean, it's amazing. The cross forgave our sins, absolutely. But now, on the back end of this understanding, we look at the cross and we see something different. We see Jesus saying. You remember that spin we were in before you were ever born? I'm here to remind you of it. I'm here to remind you that you're loved because we say so. You know what I'm saying? 
You're not loved because you say so or because of what you've done. You're loved because we say so. Jesus, the incarnation, was not a response to human sin. Like, Jesus didn't say, like the Godhead didn't sit around saying, dear God, they've lost it, we better go fix it. No, no, the incarnation was a decision made out of the choice before you and I were ever born that we would be loved without our say. So God, that's why Peter and John both say that Jesus was crucified from the foundations of the earth. When God said, let there be light, according to John and according to Peter, Jesus was crucified. Huh? What he's saying is, is when God said, let there be light, the decision had already been made. Jesus was going to become us to show us the magnitude of the choice of love that was made before you and I ever breathed. How How dare us receive that and say, Jesus came so that our whipping will be a little bit lighter. That, I'm telling you, that is heresy. That, I mean, that is heretical. I get called heretical. And if I get called heretical for too much of the love of God, I am the lead heretic. And I'll gladly take it. And we'll start a whole new thing, not even call Christianity if that's what it takes. But like, if it's become that tainted. But what I'm saying is like, we've got to get back to the place where like, our church, tomorrow morning, we're going to come into this church. And... Because y'all better be at church. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but tomorrow morning, we're going to come into this church. Everybody that's not here tonight is going to be here. It's going to be a girl time. We're going to have breakfast, and then we're going to do worship. And what's going to happen is immediately when we do worship, because it's Sunday morning, it's 10 a.m., it's just what we do, immediately there's going to be this feeling of, 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 and we're getting past it, but we're not fully past it, of th- this is my duty. Like this is what I'm supposed to be doing at Sunday morning at 10. You know what I'm saying? And it's just this, this, this mindset of like, like, why wouldn't I show up at church on a Saturday night? Because that's weird. We do church on Sunday morning. It's just, you know what I mean? It's just this robotic mindset of all that stuff. And what it is, it's because when you've spent 30 years being taught that when you look at that, you see yourself covered in blood so that when God comes out with his bloodthirst enraged, he can look at you and say, yeah, they're covered in blood enough, but you better make sure you're stayed under it. You know what I mean? And so because of that, our worship is so apathetic because we believe the cross was apathetic. We're just responding to the God that we think is out there, somewhere in space, 10 billion miles away. We think the cross was Jesus saying, now you better get straight. And so our response in worship is, if I can just get straight, I'm good. And so we don't do intimacy with God. We do works, and we call it intimacy with God. I mean, I, you, I wish you could see some of my email box sometimes. People will message me, and people will say, I don't go to your, I, you guys do great messages, you guys do great worship. I don't go to your church because y'all don't do enough missions. Like, I just got that one recently. And I said, I don't do enough missions. What do you, what do you mean by missions? And I said, well, y'all don't, y'all don't do enough missions trips, y'all don't do enough for the homeless, y'all don't do enough for this. And I'm like, number one, you don't know what we do during the week. But number two, because <laughs> I promise you we do mission to the homeless during the week, dear Lord. But, um, but anyway, so I was like, so that, but I was like, number two, oh, we're doing missions. We're doing missions. All of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for us to be manifest. We're doing missions. And the way we're doing missions is we're becoming sons and daughters manifested. Well, that's, you know, you, you got to, that's not enough. If that's not enough, then th- all of a sudden we better just burn all these. 
because that's all we were given. Martha, Martha, you're concerned with many things that don't matter. Mary's chosen the one thing that's the good portion. It won't be taken from her. What was Mary doing? Sitting. You know what I'm saying? And that, does, that doesn't mean we, we just like treat everybody like junk. It means we treat everybody like sons and daughters because we're finally starting to figure out we're sons and daughters. But that doesn't happen unless we become a church that's obsessed with one thing. And then that one thing, of course, begins to pour into a thousand different things in our culture, but not because we're pouring out a thousand different things. It's because we're pouring out one thing that so overflows it starts to tap into a thousand different things. Comple- I mean, it's just totally opposite. Tonight, tonight, a mega church pastor would walk in this room and be stressed out of his mind, suicidal probably, at the fact that there's only a handful of people in this room. I feel comfortable here. And that says nothing about me personally. It says everything about our church. They're like, we're, we're, I want people to be here, but we're not aiming at like some like success of what we're becoming coming as an as a, as a influenced church. We're aiming, our success is seeing that correctly. That's it. Like when I look at the cross... Easter is the work. Did you know Easter, um, I want to get this right, is Easter comes right before Memorial Day every year, usually, usually, depending on when it is, ironically, you know. And um, (laughs) I think it's very prophetic. But anyway, um, I was reading a Eugene Peterson letter. He was joking about this um, to his son. I think whatever year he wrote this, uh, it was Easter, and then like two days later or something, or the day after or something like that was Memorial Day. And um, so he was just like, you know, of course. But anyway, but I, I like when we look at the cross, we's like, praise God, debt's paid, now I'll jump. And then what happens when we start to look at the cross and we say, I know who I am. And now every time we pass the cross, it's almost this, this, this Lion King moment where, you know, the dad's in the sky and some, you know, and it's almost like this, remember who you are. So every time we look at it, because because I, I don't if I if I think the cross is covering my sins I kind of don't want to look at them just like oh God I don't want to be remembered of how bad I am you know what I'm saying but if the cross is a reminder of a love that was chosen for me toward me without asking me without my approval before creation now all of a sudden I look at that and I'm reminded of who I am this this is this is everything like we worship. And all of a sudden, we're worshiping not because we have to. We're worshiping because, oh, wait, I remember who I am. I existed in the spin of the Trinity before there was ever an earth. And in that spin was a worship and a circle dance that was happening that was so glorious, it spun off. I mean, think about this. What what, what if, what if, and you can just use your imagination, what if let there be light spun out of that worship? Earth was void and formless, darkness covered the the spirits brooding. And God said, what what if in a moment of worship that thing becomes so contagious, let there be like, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden creation, creativeness starts exploding out of that worship and the culmination is the incarnation of man. See, y'all don't hear that language, right? That's what the incarnation means, became flesh, you know. And so you and I existed before we were incarnate and who we are. So I'm not talking about, you know, weird stuff. But, I mean, it's just it's changing everything about who I am, everything about who you are, hopefully. 
And like tomorrow I'm going to talk about how do we respond because I think that's the second barrier, and I'm going to say this tomorrow, but the, second, the first barrier is us, make, is us seeing this correctly. You know what I mean? Like the first barrier is that don't sound like anything I ever heard growing up or anything I see on Instagram. Absolutely it does not. You know what I'm saying? So like, like the, the, famous, the famous preacher that traveled around with millions of followers said that our, I was sin and darkness. Well, you just, you just take your pick, whichever one feels right. You just, y'all follow it. But, um, but I'm telling you, there's something in our guts that's saying, this is everything I've been born for. So that's number one. But the second barrier that we're going to talk about tomorrow is how do we respond? Because you cannot hear a gospel that's identity-based and then respond with works. So, so how do we hear a gospel that's identity-based and then respond with an identity response? So that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow, unless you lose your life. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll be done. Lord, thank you for this night. I, I just, I, I absolutely needed this tonight. I needed a small family um, type atmosphere. It just feels good. So thank you for that. And uh, Lord, I, I just pray that our, for our church that we'll just dare to go into places that um, have absolutely been trotted. They've just not been trotted in a long time. And um, I, I just hear this. Let me just pray this as we're all praying together. And then we'll wrap it up. But I, hear, I just hear the Lord saying this. This is really significant. That every 500 years, there is a major turning in the church. And um, at 1,000 years, 500, the first 500 years, it was the early church, you know, the uh, creeds and the formation of the early church and all that stuff. In the, in the year 1,000, around 1,000, the east and west split. Extremely significant. Damaging for us. Extremely significant. And then at 1,500, 500 years later, was Martin Luther and the Reformation. And salvation is not about what you pay. It's not about what you do. It's about faith alone. Huge. And that spawned us. But now it's been 500 years. The 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther nailing that 99 theses pieces of paper to the church door in Wittenberg. The 500-year anniversary was one month before we started this church. I didn't know that. But it was one month before we started this church. Very significant. And I think 500 years right now comes the another shift. And the next shift is not just salvation is by faith. But the next shift, I believe, is what does it mean for God to be love? And we already see this because our earth our culture is crying out for love right now. They're crying out for the wrong love, but at least they're crying out for love. And you just get this sense that the earth is groaning and travailing in childbirth pains, Romans 8. And so, Lord, we just say come. The spirit and the bride say come. So whatever you want to do, do it. And we're just going to be along for the ride. And we receive it in your name. Amen.